Obviously, a virus that was unknown several months ago has changed our lives in ways no one could have imagined. And I'm sure we would all love for life to go back the way it was, even with the problems we had before COVID. But we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We have every assurance that our eternal future has been secured by Christ and that God can cause good to come even from the bad things that happen. But the day-to-day -day struggle sometimes seems more than we can bear. So what do we do when the going gets tough? Do we rise to meet the challenge by following the traditional edict when the going gets tough, the tough get going? Or is that a challenge that's beyond our doing? No one wants to be a wimp or a weenie at the first sign of difficulty. And the American way is to dig down deep, grit your teeth, and just do it. But there are times when that is not the best approach to a difficult situation. There are times when relying on self just is not enough. And we need to look to resources beyond ourselves. Jesus had come to such a time in our text for today. And while it would ultimately be something he would have to face alone, the disciples were caught up in the events that led to the end. And they had to face some difficulties and difficult times themselves. The way they handled it and the way Jesus handled it, however, differed markedly. The disciples relied on the flesh. And Jesus relied on on the Father. Let's see who made the better choice in this situation. Continuing our study in the 14th chapter of Mark, we begin with verse 26. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, that you yourself this very night, before a cock crows twice, shall three times deny me. Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing too. Jesus had just finished instituting the Lord's Supper, taking elements from the Passover meal and giving them new meaning. He took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He then took a cup and gave thanks and gave it to them and said, This cup which is poured out for you is the covenant 
in my blood. They then sang a hymn, no doubt the Hallel, the song of praise found in Psalms 113 through 118, which traditionally was sung at Passover. One of the closing verses of that hymn says, Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Jesus knew he would be that sacrifice. And he knew how the disciples would react to his sacrifice. 500 years earlier, the prophet Zechariah had written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. So as they were leaving Jerusalem, heading for the Mount of Olives, Jesus shocked the disciples for a second time that night. Earlier at dinner, he had said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. That led to them all crying, Surely not I. As you saw last week, 11 of them said that with a clean heart. One said it only to remain hidden from view. But Judas was no longer present, but the others didn't know where he had gone. They thought Jesus had sent him on an errand. And now as they walked along the road, Jesus announced, You will all fall away. And that they would all scatter like sheep when a shepherd is struck down. He tried to assure them that their failure would only be temporary, telling them that after he had been raised, he would go before them into Galilee. They would once again be together. But as usual, they didn't hear what he had to say about his death and resurrection. They simply reacted to the declaration that they would all fall away. Peter, being the most vocal and most impulsive, said, in effect, no way. I, I'll never fall away. Now, obviously, that was a little more than just a little egotistical. But Peter thought he knew himself. And he knew what he could handle. Maybe the others didn't have what it would take, but he did. He knew it. So Jesus hit him again with a blow aimed only at him. Truly I say to you that you yourself this very night before a cock crows twice shall three times deny me. But it still didn't faze him. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. He was cocksure of himself. <laughs> How appropriate that it would be the crowing of a cock that would bring him to tears and to his senses. He thought he could handle it himself. He had faith in himself, faith in the flesh. And so did the others. Earlier, when James and John had sought the seats of honor in his kingdom, Jesus asked if they would be able to drink the cup he would drink or be baptized with the baptism that he was to go through. The response was, sure, no problem, we can handle it. And now they were so sure of themselves that they completely ignored the fact that Peter said they might not be able to handle it and insisted that they could. They were strong. They had faith in the flesh. Jesus, 
on the other hand, had faith in the Father. And they came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for thee. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what thou wilt. John tells us that Gethsemane was a garden and a place where Jesus often met with his disciples. There weren't any gardens in Jerusalem itself. It was felt that the sacred soil of the city shouldn't be fertilized. So all the gardens in the area were outside the city walls. And so they went to Gethsemane, which is primarily an olive grove on the Mount of Olives. The name Gethsemane actually means oil press. And it no doubt had a press where olive oil was extracted. It was a quiet place where Jesus could go to draw strength from his heavenly Father. And he knew he would need an extra measure of strength for what lay ahead. Now, he didn't go there to psych himself up or to hold a pep rally with his disciples. He went there to pray, to find strength outside himself. And yes, even the Son of God needed strength from outside himself. In Philippians 2.7, Paul says, When Jesus became a man, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. So he went to the garden as a man. The only thing he had that we don't have may well have been specific knowledge of the future. We know what will happen in the end, but he knew what was going to happen that night. He knew he was going to be betrayed. He knew he was going to die. And the disciples knew it too if they had been listening you know, there are times when we think we'd really like to know the future, but would we really? Do you think it would be easier going into the garden knowing or not knowing what was ahead? I think I'd rather just walk in not knowing, just trusting that my heavenly Father was in control and would give me what I needed when I needed it. Jesus walked in knowing what was ahead. And the full impact of it hit him hard. He told most of the disciples to have a seat and just relax in the garden while he went off for a time of prayer. He asked Peter, James, and John to accompany him a little further. And then Mark says he began to be very distressed and troubled. 
the translation misses some of the impact of the original Greek here. A more literal translation would be, he began to be greatly astonished and to be disturbed. He was astonished. He was amazed. The word used here comes from the root meaning immovable and is associated with fear. Jesus was afraid and he was astonished that he was afraid. It distressed him to discover just how afraid he was. Jesus didn't want to die. He didn't want to face the cross. He was at this point human like us. And he didn't want to go through this any more than we would have. His soul was deeply grieved to the point of death. So he asked his closest friends for help to keep watch, knowing that the betrayer would be coming. He then went a stone's throw away from them, fell to the ground, and began praying that if it were possible, that this hour might pass him by. He cried out to his father, calling him Abba, Daddy. You can do anything, please. Take this cup from me. Is there any other way? He knew what the plan was. But apparently he didn't fully understand why it had to be the way it had been planned. Did he really have to die? Now, some might find it shocking that Jesus didn't understand why things had to be the way they had to be. But... If he was to be tempted in all things like we are, which the writer of Hebrews assures us he was, he would have to face the big why, just as we do. Why does God allow what he allows? Why doesn't God do something? Why do I have to go through what I'm going through? That is the toughest question of all for believers. And that's the question that made sweat fall from Jesus' face like great drops of blood. He didn't want to die. He didn't understand why he had to die. But he had faith in his Father, and in his Father's will. And through prayer, he would find the strength to follow it. Unlike Peter, who said, I can handle it. I'll never fail. I can take anything life throws at me. Jesus said, Father, Daddy, I don't want to go through this. I'm afraid. If there's any other way, let's do it. But if there isn't, I'll do what you want me to do. And I'll trust you to give me what I need to do it. It shouldn't surprise us to find out who failed. And he came and found them asleep. And said to Peter, Simon? 
Are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. The man who said he could take it who would even die before failing Jesus, couldn't even stay awake on watch for one hour. Now, in fairness to Peter, they all fell asleep. But he was the one who protested the loudest when Jesus said they would all desert him. And Jesus speaks to him when he finds them asleep. And do notice what he calls him. He doesn't call him Peter, the rock, a name he gave to him back in chapter 3. He calls him Simon, a name that hadn't been used by Mark since then. But Peter, with all his self-confidence, couldn't even stay awake to watch and pray. He was not acting like the rock he was supposed to be. Jesus then put his finger on the problem. He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We usually take that to mean that Peter really wanted to stay awake. His spirit was willing, but his flesh was weak. He just couldn't do it. And that may be all that Jesus is saying here. But he could be saying Something else. There's no way for us to know whether spirit should be capitalized or not. The original Greek was written in all capital letters. And while most, most translators don't capitalize it here, thinking it refers to Peter's spirit, it may be a reference to the Holy Spirit, in which case it should be capitalized. That makes a lot of sense. The Spirit was willing to give the disciples the strength they needed. Just as Jesus went to the Father in faith, seeking strength from him, the disciples could have sought spiritual strength to do what Jesus asked them to do. But they didn't think they needed it. They thought the flesh was strong enough to handle it. But it wasn't. They couldn't even stay awake to get ready to face what was coming. Jesus woke them up a second time and again challenged them to watch and pray. But again, they fell asleep. When he came back the third time, he couldn't believe they were sleeping again, but they were. And it was now too late 
to prepare spiritually for what was about to happen. The betrayer was at hand, and they were not spiritually prepared to deal with it. They would soon discover that the flesh is a lot weaker than they thought. Too bad they hadn't prepared, as had Jesus. By admitting their fear and weakness, and in confidence that God would enable them to do what he wanted them to do, surrender to his will. But they didn't. Let's see how Jesus handled things in full surrender to the Father. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he's the one, seize him, and lead him away under guard. After coming, he immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But a certain one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but this has happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled, referring to the disciples. And a certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him, but he left the linen sheet behind and escaped naked. While Jesus was still speaking to the sleepy disciples, Judas arrived, leading a multitude with swords and clubs. John tells us Judas was not only leading the religious leaders and guards from the temple, he was leading a Roman cohort, a battalion of Roman soldiers. That's 600 men. Judas had arranged to identify Jesus with a kiss, and he went straight to Jesus. And not only did he kiss him on the cheek, as a disciple would be expected to do when greeting his teacher, he kissed Jesus fervently. The word is used of a lover's kiss. Whether Judas was overcome with emotion at what he was doing or was making mockery of his affection for Jesus, we'll never know. Whatever his intention, he betrayed Jesus and signaled the soldiers to arrest him. Now John paints a picture of further confusion at this moment, telling us that Jesus even asked them, who do you seek? When they said Jesus of Nazareth, he responded, I am. Whether they picked up on the full significance of I am or not, something about his demeanor caused them to draw back and fall to the ground. He asked them a second time. And after again identifying himself as the one they were looking for, he asked them to let the disciples go. At that point, Peter drew his sword, apparently thinking 
he could take on 600 soldiers <laughs> and started swinging away. You know, proving that if you're going to carry a weapon, you better make sure you know how to use it. All he managed to do was nick the ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. Now, all four gospel writers say he cut off the ear, but several of them use a diminutive form of the word for ear, which may mean earlobe. Dr. Luke says Jesus touched his ear and healed it, not that he picked it up and put it back on. Whatever the case, Peter wasn't very effective in his defense of Jesus. And Jesus told him to put his sword back in its sheath, reminding him that if he wanted to be defended, he could appeal to his father who would put at his immediate disposal 12 legions. That's 72,000 angels. But he had surrendered to his father's will. As revealed in scripture and discerned through prayer, and was willing to drink the cup the Father had given him. Even though he didn't like the way he was being arrested, like a, a common criminal, he didn't resist. He was confident that his Father was in control. The disciples, on the other hand, those who had pledged their allegiance and their willingness to die in Jesus' defense, who were confident they could handle it, all fled into the night. Mark adds a little postscript here about a certain young man who had followed them to the garden and ran away naked when soldiers grabbed the bedsheet he'd been wrapped in. It's pretty well agreed that that young man was Mark. And that it had been Mark's parents' home where Jesus and the disciples had celebrated the Lord's Supper. He had apparently slipped out of bed to see what was going on. What he saw was men who had faith in the flesh fail. And Jesus who had faith in his father, face a horrible night with confidence that was born from his surrender to the father's will. So how are you going to face the nighttime ahead? With self-induced bravado that will ultimately fail or with full surrender to the Father's will, knowing that while his will may be hard and not fully understood, it will lead to victory. If you'll surrender to the Father's will now, you'll find yourself dressed in garments of grace and righteousness in the morning. If you try to handle it on your own, there's a good chance you'll find yourself running scared and naked in the dark.
Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for allowing us to see the difference between trying to handle the struggles of life on our own and yielding to your lordship and trusting your grace. I'm thankful that the disciples screwed up. That gives us confidence that even if we mess up, you can still use us. But I'm especially grateful that you demonstrated through your son how even though we're afraid and we're crying and we're in tears and we don't understand why, if we trust you and have confidence in your will, we can pass through the hard times, even, even death itself, and come through victorious, clothed in righteousness through Christ, in whose name we pray.